0: Bitcoiners, welcome to a very special episode of the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. I'm sitting across from my stud colleague, Dylan LeClaire, and Dylan just talked to the man, Greg Foss. Uh, I remember I had Greg Foss on the uh, FedWatch podcast, and he was dropping so much knowledge about how Bitcoin is this uh, insurance against uh, sovereign debt and uh, how he you know, used that mental model in order to value Bitcoin today at over $150,000 a coin. Um, you know, I think Greg is the man. I know that you think very highly of him as well, Dylan. Uh, why don't you give the listeners a little bit of a preview about what you guys talked about?
1: Yeah, me and, me and Greg, I mean, Greg is, is so experienced in credit markets. He's been, he's been trading on the street for 30 years. Um, we really just dug deep into why the system is irreversibly broken um the leverage in the system why why uh central banks can't allow it to unwind we talk credit default swaps bitcoin as a as a solution to it all talk volatility um, a little bit of, of trading strategy and maybe uh you know maybe there's some we leaked some alpha in the interview so you know i think i think anybody tuning in is gonna thoroughly enjoy this one with greg um he really knows this stuff uh and it was it was awesome to pick his brain
0: yeah, I mean, I could second that again, you know, Greg, I feel like he's really come out on the scene uh, very quickly, but Bitcoin and Bitcoiners uh, really believe in a meritocracy. And I feel like Greg's immediate recognition uh, just kind of speaks to how much signal um, he's really pushing out. Um, but with that being said, another place that, you know, I've been personally working on increasing and amplifying the signals at, over at Bitcoin Magazine, bitcoinmagazine.com. Uh, Dylan, myself, a team of over five, uh, you know, full-time hungry Bitcoiners are always constantly just trying to put the best inputs into Bitcoin Magazine and make sure that we're covering all the best news, covering all the best plug posts, covering all the best just kind of like thought leadership. Uh, in the Bitcoin space and doing Bitcoin justice. So uh, if you're not already subscribed to Bitcoin Magazine, go to our website, subscribe to Twitter, subscribe to our newsletter, check out all of the amazing content that we're constantly pushing out. Uh, but until then, let's get into this awesome podcast with Greg Foss.
1: Hey guys, i here with Greg Foss today. Um, we're talking about uh, Bitcoin and the macro environment leading up to Greg and uh, the the Bitcoin Twenty One uh, discussion on the macro environment. So uh, yeah, Greg, for the for those who don't know, you want to just give a brief introduction about who you are, your background, and and your uh, thesis and that in that awesome uh, report you put up.
2: Sure. Well, hi everyone. Um, my name is Greg Foss. I'm coming to you from Toronto, Canada. I have uh, spent thirty just over 30 years trading credit in my life. I was a high yield bond trader on both the buy side and the sell side of the street. The sell side is when you work for an investment dealer, like in the US, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, and then the buy side, I worked for two separate hedge funds where I became a client of the street. So I did a tremendous amount of trading with the likes of Goldman Sachs and uh, JP Morgan, Uh, Our hedge fund uh, successfully uh, navigated the uh, great financial crisis in 2008, which was largely, largely, as everyone knows, a credit event. And uh, in 2016, I decided to retire from the hedge fund business. And since then, I've been, uh, well, in 2016, I got introduced to Bitcoin. And since then, I've become a full-time Bitcoin student. I have never seen anything as cool in my whole life from both a technological perspective as well as a opportunity to fix the financial system and the shortcomings in the financial system as I've experienced them and as I see uh, going forward. Awesome.
1: Yeah. Um, so for those who haven't, haven't read your report, um, I, think, I think one of the things with, with understanding Bitcoin or understanding the value prop um, is kind of understanding how broken the, the financial system is and, and just ha- like irreparably broken, right? Um, and, and understanding credit is kind of a deep rabbit hole within itself. Do um, you want to you wanna dig into a little bit about how or why it's so irreversibly broken?
2: Sure. Um, so to, to start, I'm a mathematics guy. Um, everything I've studied and traded in my life typically is based on factual mathematics. As everybody knows, <clears throat> math is the base layer of language. In other words, whether you speak Chinese or, uh, Spanish, uh, any other language in the world, uh, everybody communicates in math as the base layer. And then the second layers are their, uh, native tongues. But I started as an engineer. Uh, studied in Canada, then went to the U.S. and did an MBA in uh, University, uh, upstate New York, Cornell University. And I came back to Canada and I worked at Canada's largest financial institution. And uh, I was quickly introduced to some of the shortcomings of the financial system. Uh, I was working for Royal Bank of Canada and very, uh, as honestly as I can say it, uh, Royal Bank of Canada was insolvent. And that's a pretty eye-opening experience coming out of uh, two years of business school and four years of undergrad, where you just are never taught any of these uh, uh, potential scenarios. Uh, Royal Bank of Canada was insolvent because it had lent too much money to lesser developed countries around the world. They were termed LDC. Primarily though, those lesser developed countries were in South America. And the Royal Bank of Canada, if you had marked the value of the loans they made from the 100 cents on the dollar that they made the loans at down to the trading price of approximately 25 cents on the dollar that mark to market loss would have uh vaporized their book value of equity so that's the definition of insolvency and (laughs) royal bank of canada was not uh was not alone in fact the entire Global financial system was in the same shape. And therefore, Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady in 1988 proposed what's called the Brady plan, starting with the country of Mexico. Uh, And I had my job. I was working directly for the CFO. I had to come out just fresh out of school. I had to advise the bank as to what Brady plan option we were going to take on $1 billion worth of Mexican debt. Now, a billion dollars doesn't sound like a lot of money in today's day and age, but it was a lot of money back in uh, 1988. And it was a big project for me. And, you know, I was working directly for the CFO and we made a decision to go 100%. We chose this par option. It was called the Brady par option. And um, everyone in the global banking system made their respective choice. And how it worked was. As opposed to taking a five-year loan and having to write it down to market of 25 cents, Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady, very intelligently, together with his staff, determined a plan to change that five-year loan into a 30-year, three-zero-year obligation, and where the principal was backed by U.S. Treasury zero-coupon debt. So the cool thing was. The banks did not have to write the the loans down to market because over a period of 30 years the zero coupon portion of the guarantee would accrete to 100 cents on the dollar it was a brilliant solution a bit of accounting gimmickry okay and uh, that that's unfortunate well it's not unfortunate it was a very eye-opening experience for me and uh i from that day was uh, looking for a solution to what I term the Fiat Ponzi okay now that was back in 1988. I didn't become a gold bug per se I understood the uh, the uh, applications and uh, appreciated the value and the stored value proposition for gold but uh, in 2016 I was introduced to Bitcoin and from that day I said, wow this is the solution to how can? people have confidence in the global banking system if it becomes insolvent. So the global banking system was insolvent in 1988. It was again insolvent in 2008 with the great financial crisis and it's my opinion in 2019-20. It was again insolvent if you were to mark to market the value of the loans on the balance sheets of the big banks. Now I'm not trying to start a bank run. I don't want hate mail. I just want people to understand that when you have a banking system that's levered like the North American and global banking system is, that being said, it's levered to the tune of 20 to 25 times. That means for every loan that's made, there's only 4 to $0.05 on the dollar that is comprised of risk-absorbing equity, and the balance, i.e. $0.96 or $0.95, is depositor's money depositors money, whether it's from their own retail banking system or it's interbank deposits or it's subordinated subordinated debt as part of their capital structure, the point is there's only 4 or 5 cents of risk-absorbing capital. How can people have confidence in that system? Henry Ford said over 100 years ago, we said if the common American understood how the banking system really worked, there'd be a revolution in the morning. And what it comes down to is uh, that's the leverage that's in the banking system. It's always been there. Uh, People though have confidence to be the depositor because why? Well, there's a little bit of deposit insurance, that's for sure, but the reality is everybody feels the banks are too big to fail. And that leverage being too big to fail means on a regular basis, the Fed does have to step in and rescue the system. And certainly that happened in 2008, 2009. And unfortunately, what happens then is the leverage in the financial system gets transferred essentially to the leverage or to the balance sheets of the federal governments around the world. And that is the danger in the system. Leverage is always the danger in the system and leverage unwinds are always the painful uh, result of a market drawdown, and when leverage gets pulled out of the system, well, we've seen it on a regular basis, prices essentially collapse, um, the system doesn't function anymore. When I say the system, i.e. new issue product is impossible to raise for capex, if companies wanted to raise money for in the public markets, the market's essentially shut. So That's the risk, Dylan. Um, and I know the solution. I think that uh, a lot of people know the solution. Some of them are afraid to admit the solution, i.e. they could still be in the uh, legacy banking system, but the reality is that we have passed a point of no return because the total global debt divided by total glo- global GDP is a factor of four. OK, total global debt is four times the denominator, which is global GDP. GDP. Now, that's essentially your tax base. Well, let's put a coupon in the, the numerator, an average coupon in the debt of global debt. Let's call it three percent, which I think is a generously low coupon. And therefore, your debt balloon is growing at four times three percent, which is 12 percent means your denominator has to grow at 12% just to keep up with the organic growth of your debt balloon. That doesn't even include deficits that are added when governments say, "Well, we're just going to print another couple of trillion dollars." You know, the math is a certainty that fiat's will debase because the only solution when you have a debt spiral, the only solution is to continuously print money. And when you continuously print new money to solve that equation, I call the fiat currency the error term. And that fiat currency as an error term will continue to debase. It's 100% certain. It's only based on mathematics. You can't fight math. So to to go back a little bit, um, you were talking about in
1: the the late 80s with the the Brady plan and how um, basically there was just there was too much too much debt, or the debt couldn't be repaid, so they um, they lengthened the duration of the credit that had to be repaid. So since then, I guess just to put a little bit of context on it, um, around the world, but really, um, I, I guess the U.S. being the world reserve currency, I feel um, like also all the the risk free rates or, or the the rates from from other countries, um, you know, every every credit like rate in the world is kind of off of the U.S. Treasury, right. and so. Since since 1981, but um, you know, there's been this 40-year secular trend of of lower rates, right? So so every time there was this sort of um, you know uh, credit contraction, yes, um, there what they did was they pushed down the discount rate. So now in and we we hit we hit zero, we hit the zero lower bound in in the 08, 9 crisis, right? Um, and and since then we we really haven't gotten off of it. Um, and so, yeah, it puts us in in the position we are in today, where there's there's really like the, the the amount that we can kick the can is is no, you know, we can't really we can't lower rates anymore. So, um, yeah, just just like uh, I think I guess to quote one of your uh, one of your things that I thought was was really interesting and, and telling in in your piece was a bond investor doesn't really think how much can I make; it's more about how much can I lose.
2: And so oh, with true, rates yeah. at
1: with rates at zero, I think, and and you know, a lot of people don't understand credit. But with rates at zero, the the how much can I make is almost nothing, and how much can I lose is everything. So, uh, yeah, um, I guess how how are credit investors thinking about this
2: environment? It's a great question. So you know, <clears throat> most credit investors have lived the 40-year bull market in bonds. When I say 40 years, you quoted 1981. Uh, when I first started trading, uh, and I was trading before I got my first job, but when I first started trading, uh, call it 1986, US 10-year interest rates were at 14, one four percent Okay, There's been a 40-year downtrend in interest rates. A lot of it's because uh, Paul Volcker successfully uh, snuffed out inflation in the early 80s and that uh that rate decreasing has been an evolution of uh lower and lower reported lower and lower reported inflation <laughs> nonetheless rates did bottom out in the 10 year space as you mentioned about last february uh just after covid at about 60 basis points that's uh 0.6% so interest rates have gone from 14% to under 1%. And bond math is quite simple. Uh, First of all, there are no true capital gains in bonds, even though the price does change. As interest rates go down, the price of your bond goes higher, everything else being equal. But what happens if you sell your bond at a higher price all you have to, are able to do is take those proceeds and reinvest them in a new bond with a lower coupon. So over time, you've pulled forward your returns by cashing in higher coupon bonds for lower coupon bonds. The lower coupon just reflects the open market yield. Um, and now it works in the reverse because not even concerning ourselves with the credit risk of the US Treasury... Of which there is some, but most people don't even think along those lines. The flip side is you need to worry about bond prices going down as interest rates go higher. All right, and simple bond math—you can see it in uh, in action over the last year. One year ago, Dylan, they issued a one and a quarter percent thirty-year U.S. Treasury bond which one year later, there's 29 years remaining, but open market rates have gone from the 1.25% in the 30 year up to 2.5% in the 30 year. Well, that increase in rates has cost the 30 year bond from one year ago, over 25 bond points, i.e. the pawn trades under 75 cents on the dollar. It's been forever in my career I mean forever, that you have seen a U.S. Treasury bond lose 30% of its value. It hasn't happened. But what happens if rates going forward continue to rise? And I'm going to quote Ray Dalio here. Uh, You know, you better learn bond math. That's not his quote. I'm saying you better learn bond math. And his quote was, I'd rather own Bitcoin than a bond. And I agree with his analysis There is very little return left for the risk that's inherent in all corporate bonds, excuse me, all bonds, including corporates, high yield, mortgage backed securities, the whole gamut. There is an incredible amount of pricing risk in those bonds that my generation has never experienced because it's been 40 years since a bond manager has ever experienced that. Yeah. So I guess kind of going off of that
1: a little bit right now, we're kind of in this environment where um, consumer price index for the first time, and, and we can debate the merit of the CPI gauge, um, but, but uh, you know, consumer price index is starting to creep up and, and just anecdotally, everybody, you know, Google searches for inflation, everybody's, you know, the cost of, of living is rising obviously. And it does you know, it takes a fool to not notice that. Um, and you see a lot of people, or maybe sometimes, occasionally, someone will say, "Well, in the '70s, you know, they raised interest rates, so why can't they do that again?" But what I think, and and you're explaining this quite well, um, just the amount of debt in the system,
2: Correct.
1: Compared to 1970, or or you know, um, 71, or, or after that, yeah. when you came off the gold standard and Volcker crushed crushed inflation by raising rates to almost 20%. Right now, there's so much debt that you know there is that bond math where if the 30 year 30 year or all this debt that's out there that needs to be rolled over if if rates rise everything gets crushed because there is that like convexity from the zero lower bound up um yeah so just like and and i guess maybe going off dalio's uh you know announcement yesterday how much of uh like, do you think that's a big deal in terms of, of sentiment or, you know, kind of echoing your thesis? Because a lot of people on Bitcoin Twitter or just in this space are, are like are ahead of Dalio. You know, like we, we've been saying this thing, but Dalio coming in, $140 billion hedge fund, legendary investor. He's he, you know, rode that risk parity trade for the last few decades. Do you think that has a huge impact on the market or just, you know, the overall thesis of Bitcoin?
2: Yes, absolutely. And uh, so, firstly, I'm going to tell you that Ray Dalio is one of the most astute investors of our time. Um, yes, that risk parity, parity trade was brilliant. Essentially, for the listeners, what risk parity meant was that he would have a portfolio of debt and equities, and according to the vol uh, of each of those asset classes, he would uh, adjust his portfolio mix uh, such that if he was long equities, his hedge was long debt as well because generally, if equities went down in price, when there was a drawdown in equities, interest rates would go lower and in tandem, therefore, the price of bonds would go higher and that risk parity allowed him to smooth out portfolio vol. Uh, and offer large institutional investors a uh, a pretty formulaic uh, return at lower uh, combined risk or lower combined volatility. It's a brilliant trade. Uh, he built a massive hedge fund on the back of that, but even he would admit now, okay, yeah, I rode the 30-year interest rate from Now, I'm going to assume he started managing money right around when I did, Um, again, right around 14% down to under 1%. You know, there's a lower bound on that. You would say interest rates can go through zero, which they have in Europe, to to the extent that I can never explain that. Because if that was an asset at one point, because that's what a bond is in your portfolio, it is an asset. But once rates go below zero, they become a liability. What does that mean? Well, essentially, you're paying somebody. Uh, to own that uh, investment on your behalf. That's not an asset. That's a liability. So the reality is uh, Ray has uh, successfully navigated risk, uh, built a huge business on it, and it is important to listen to very experienced people like him. Um, but that's a—that's not a loud voice out there, Dylan. Um, he understands the mathematics behind fiat debasing because that's all a bond is, is a fiat contract. So let's say you make a contract where you're going to lend somebody $100 at time zero and in $10, you want to get that $100 back together with a coupon. that compensates you for the inflation risk and the credit risk of lending that $100. Well, you will, in the case of the U.S. Treasury, very likely get your money back in 10 years, i.e. the credit risk on the U.S. Treasury is extremely low. It's not zero but it's extremely low, you'll get your $100 back in 10 years. The problem is the purchasing power of that $100 because it's a fiat will have been meaningfully reduced. So you'll lend $100 at time zero. In 10 years, you'll be repaid your $100. But in present value terms, how much are you able to purchase with that $100 in 10 years? Substantially less than you would be able to purchase today. So you need to hedge that risk that fiat debasing in a fiat contract is a certainty. We laid out the mathematics for that. You need to hedge that risk. And if you don't, well, the cycle continues where you are basically being taxed, right? That's what it is. It's a tax. And uh, the government has fulfilled their obligation to pay you back the $100 that you lent them. But that tax is Uh, an implied devaluation or not just implied it's a devaluation of the principal amount that you lent them and that's you know that's the game um it's a very painful game especially when interest rates are at close to zero historical lows so uh that's where we are and the flip side of that is and i'm going to quote stanley Druckenmiller here Stan Druckenmiller said the 10 year note should probably be around 3.5%. Right now it's at 160, 1.6%, 160 basis points. Uh, It should probably be at around 3.5% if the US uh, uh, Federal Reserve was not in the market buying $120 billion worth of bonds a month. But if it even got to 3.5%, he said, The U.S. is in danger of losing their reserve currency status because 30% of treasury revenues, tax revenues, would be used just to service the coupon on the debt. Not paying down any outstanding debt, no. Not paying any government programs, no. 30% of every dollar, 30 cents on every dollar, would be used to pay down Or excuse me to pay the coupon that's at three and a half percent what happens if rates went back above three and a half percent and then the the debt spiral just accelerates okay that's all it is it's an acceleration of the debt spiral d e b t spiral we do not want it to become a death d e a t h spiral we don't want that what we do need is a parallel system in the form of bitcoin which will work as a store of value to protect you against that debasing.
1: So, Greg, I have a, I have a question for you. Sure.
2: Um,
1: I, I think I've I've heard you talk about this a little bit before um, with Preston or a couple other interviews. I've i I think I've listened to mostly all of them. But um, so, in these type of deleveraging events, right, where where there is contagion in the credit markets, vol explodes. Um, you have you have every risk manager going out and buying more protection. and It's just kind of like you said in your paper, a negative feedback loop of, of risk, um, like like maybe what we saw last March, Bitcoin gets hit, and and the narrative that was spewed out was because Bitcoin is this liquid global instrument, um, trades twenty four seven, and it's quoted in you know in, in nominal dollar terms, and so when there is this um, credit event where where dollars are literally getting destroyed with how you know lending in the fiat system creates dollars and and defaults or repayment destroys them. Um, bitcoin will get hit and in, in my guess pretty hard how do you think about um how do you think about that and do you think at what point does does a credit contagion event um at what point does bitcoin not actually maybe get hit but actually you know explode upwards in, in that sort of event so that's
2: a great question and you know here's <laughs> the reality is it's 12 years old right and so there's two there's always two factors at risk um in a leverage unwind, uh, what what is a leverage unwind? Well, basically, it's when liquidity is being withdrawn from the system, and your margin clerk comes over to you. You're running a hedge fund. You're using leverage, and sometimes you're not even using leverage, but your margin clerk comes over to you or your your cash clerk and says, "We're being redeemed." Okay, there's unit holders who want their money back. There's a there's a panic in the system and uh, they want their money back. They just want to hold it, whether it's in their mattress or they think it's being held in a bank is the smart place to hold it. Long story short, that cash demand means you sell what you can, not always what you want to, you sell what you can. And sometimes that includes Bitcoin. Particularly if Bitcoin has been a very strong performing asset in your asset mix, sometimes your human nature is to crystallize those capital gains. Um, so there is that pressure that happens. There's also the inexperience pressure, Dylan. Um, you know, it takes a while, a long time for these narratives to take hold where you shouldn't be selling this. You should actually be buying it at this point, you know, but human nature, again, whether it's, it's pushed by, uh, a margin clerk telling you, uh, Hey Foss, it's time to, uh, to, to raise some cash because we're being redeemed. Um, or it's. The human nature, sell your winners uh, just because you can. Uh, but let's say in another 10 years, this narrative is really the reverse where uh, a contagion event would lead to more demand for Bitcoin. I think it's a, it, it's like everything. It's, it's an evolution uh, of thought, of education, of understanding that let's look back at that event in March. Like It didn't stay down there for long. And yes, it was a precursor to the risk off trade, but wow, did it snap back quickly. And people will, will learn from that, uh, that, hey, you shouldn't be selling something like that when in fact, if the system, the fiat system is unraveling to an extent, you actually want to rush for protection, meaning you want to own Bitcoin. You don't want to be selling your protection. If your house, you know, if you've bought fire insurance and your neighborhood is burning down, you shouldn't. Run out and sell your fire insurance, your house is probably going to burn down as part of the neighborhood. You should be owning more fire insurance. That's what Bitcoin is it's insurance on the fiat system. So when the fiat system becomes shaky, the narrative will be in the future, in my opinion, you need to own more insurance, not less. You don't sell your insurance, you want to buy more of it. And that, you know, this is part of an education process. I could very well be wrong, but. Everything that I've learned in 30 years is you buy more of your insurance when your risk is increasing. And when your risk is increasing because of contagion, because the financial system has gummed up, uh, yeah, you should run. So there'll be a, uh, uh, I can't say for sure how the playbook will work, but it would be my opinion you shouldn't be running and selling your assets to hold cash. You should be selling other risk assets to own the insurance, which is Bitcoin. Brilliant. So I I have
1: a kind of another question for you. So sure. um, thinking about like kind of like Dahlia, where he has this risk parity trade, where um, if equity sell off, um, you know, there's, there is this kind of deleveraging event. The Fed or all the central banks of the world come in. And uh, inject liquidity, and they squash vol, and it pushes rates lower. Well, at at the end of this paradigm, now we're at, at zero, and, and we know kind of Bitcoin is this insurance on the whole on the whole game. What do you think about? And this may be more sophisticated sort of trade, but um, pairing pairing a, a decently sized Bitcoin uh, position with with some vol, um, where where in in this environment, like vol vol explodes. You now have, um, you now have some cash to go to go buy the dip. What do you like? Is, do you think, are you positioning you, let yourself let me, this way? You know, you're
2: you're you're a very smart young man. Uh, do you think Mr. Dalio's not doing this mental mental mathematics in his head? Do you think he has not done this in his own personal portfolio and they're running uh, they whether they're running real portfolios or model portfolios based off of these outcomes and sensitivity testing and, and, and doing, you know, you don't just do backward testing. You do, you, you do sensitivity analysis going forward. I promise you he is. Okay. Why is he doing it? Cause he's a pretty darn smart man. Uh, yes, this is, you nailed it. I can't say it any better. So before, if his bucket trade was you know, between two silos, uh, equities and bonds, well, let's just examine what he said. He said, OK, Bitcoin, I understand it. And then he said, I'd rather own Bitcoin than a bond. So did that mean he just took away that second silo and now it's equities and Bitcoin? I don't know. Doesn't matter. You can have more than two or three silos in a risk parity portfolio. Everybody should. Everyone thinks along the lines of your 60-40 model. Funny thing is, and 60-40 being 60% equities, 40% debt. Well, when yields are as low as they are, and think of your CalPERS at this point, okay? CalPERS, California Pension, oh, sorry, yeah, California Public Employees Retirement System, I believe that's what CalPERS stands for, uh, is the largest uh, pension fund in the US, one of the largest, if not the largest. It has a target or or prescribed rate of return of 8%, right? Well think about it, 8% is a combination of 60% equity and 40% debt. Well, what is a proper return on the 40% debt in this yield environment? this is before defaults, but I'm gonna throw out a number again, about 3%. So 3%, so 40% times 3% is 1.2% that portfolio is getting from fixed income before defaults. So let's ignore defaults and just say, okay, 1.2% is coming from equity, excuse me, from debt or uh, fixed income the flip side is 60% therefore has to make up the balance which is 6.8% to get to your in your total 8% prescribed return right well what is 6.8% divided by 0.6 that's over 10 or 11% annualized return on equities for them to get their prescribed rate of return what if though they threw in a third bucket which is bitcoin and Luckily, some smart academics have helped do that for us. Yale University has done that. And Yale has said, hey, guys, I don't care if you're a pension fund, if you're a family office, if you're a personal investor, you should own between six and eight percent of your portfolio in Bitcoin to get optimal portfolio returns and actually reduce portfolio volatility. That's a that's a big number coming from a smart, you know, uh. Uh, asset allocator, academic asset allocator, but boy, that's a lot of money that should flow into Bitcoin. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they tell you to take that 8% out of your fixed income bucket. So what would it mean? Well, maybe you've gone from 60-40 to 60-32 and 8, the third silo being uh, Bitcoin. Hey, as a risk manager my whole life, I certainly understand the the, uh, benefits of that. Uh, I guarantee you, Mr. Dalio does. Uh, He's funny, right? Because he can't tip off the world that he wants to do it for his own fund. 140 billion, let's say he wants to do uh, 10% in his portfolio. Well, let's do some mental math there. Uh, He needs to buy 14. Uh, yeah, $14 billion worth of- uh, That's moving of, the market. Okay, well, especially because Elon bought $1.5 billion and the and the world went crazy. Like, can you imagine if Ray Dalio actually moved and, and and came out and said, now, is he doing it behind the scenes? I bet you he's doing a little bit. I'm not going to tell people. he He's admitted he owns it personally. How about this though? I'm certain across the world's pension managers and uh, central banks, somebody is doing it and when that news comes out that somebody has reached their allocation and is prepared to announce it publicly it's my opinion that it will start a tra- chain reaction of uh closet indexers i'll call them closet indexer funds that will want to do the same thing
1: super interesting um kind of similar to dalio you have you have a uh, you know renowned investor michael burry who Funny enough, he made a killing on uh, credit default swaps uh, in the 0809 crisis. Came out, and I think uh, earlier this year, a couple of months ago, um, he was making comparisons to Weimar um, and just yeah. and about you know warning that hyperinflation. while it's not here; it may be coming. And uh, there was an announcement the other day um, when like his uh, his hedge fund disclosed their holdings that um, for the inflation bet, he was actually. He was shorting treasuries. And sure. so um, your, your kind of credit default swap thesis um, and, and model is, is based on the, um, the probability of a sovereign default and, and how much debt and, and you know, unfunded liabilities there are and kind of assigning a price um, for, for Bitcoin based on that. But um, I'm interested to hear um, if central banks come in and, and when they come in, when there is this next deleveraging. leveraging... And they, you know, monetize probably unfathomable amounts of debt um, and the balance sheets explode. While that, I think in, in nominal terms, treasury bonds um, will will appreciate, the yields will get squashed and, and maybe volatility comes back in. So um, I just, I think like treasury bonds and, and, sh- and shorting them based on inflation expectations is the right move if there was
2: a free market. But- R- Great question. Well, here's the neat not thing: I'm gonna. We are not. That is correct. Uh, Michael Burry, I'm certainly not going to tell him, uh, you know, how to invest. I mean, we both lived the same side of the trade on uh, in 2008, 2009. Meaning, I owned more insurance uh, on on credit, therefore, uh, I would profit, and our fund would navigate a uh, a credit uh, induced event. The neat thing here, Dylan, that people have to understand is that a ten-year U.S. Treasury rate is made up of two components. One is an inflation expectation, and the other one is a credit risk. And the whole basis of my career is when contagion happens in the market, it won't impact credit interest rates or interest rate risk or inflation risk, but it does impact credit risk. Okay, if the CDS, the credit default spread swap spread, on the United States expands meaningfully because of a concern, not just in the United States, but globally that sovereign credit is becoming a more risky asset class. And I uh, trust me, it's becoming more risky on a daily basis because people are doing the math that we already did. And if this was a corporate bond, I'm telling you the, tr- the credit ratings of the United States Treasury would be solidly junk bond credit ratings, but they have the ability to print money. So, but a contagious event could happen in, you know, a G20 country like Turkey or uh, Argentina, which are already being reflected in the credit default swap market. But the flip side is what happens if it happens in a G7 country? What happens if Canada doesn't get our house in order Our house is a mess right now. Okay, Uh, we are in way worse shape than the United States. Our economy is just one tenth the size of the U.S. economy, Uh, based on population. You know that's just how big we are. Uh, So we're about the size of California. I mean, a meaningful economy, but you know we're not diversified like the United States, Um, and our credit default swap spread is meaningfully wider than the United States, despite the fact, strangely, well, strange is a a reality. we have a higher credit rating by S&P than the United States has. But the CDS markets, which are truth, shows us to have the insurance premium on Canada's substantially wider than the US. In fact, Canada trades as a single A equivalent type of rating. All I would say is this, if Canada becomes uh, meaningfully more distressed, in the global credit markets and eventually, and God forbid this happens, but eventually Canada does default, do you think that wouldn't have knock on impacts on its largest or second largest trading partner in the world, which is the United States? Like, Of course it would. And these types of contagion events cause credit spread widening. And when these spreads widen, interest rate in expectations or inflation expectations could be going in the other direction. But net net, there might not be a change. I would argue, you know, Michael Burry, it's funny that he's taking a negative view on, uh, on the US Treasury inflation concerns, but he's not doing it in the CDS market, or maybe he is, and he's just not saying, hey, I'm not allowed to do it again because I did it so well in 2008, 2009, I might get thrown, uh, you know, to the dogs. Uh, you, you know, the point is, you gotta look at the two components of the 10-year yield spread again, one being inflation expectations and the other being credit risk. There is, with each successive, as I mentioned, the global financial crisis, all it did is take the over leverage of the financial system and transfer it to the balance sheets of the US Treasury and the other governments around the world. This will be reflected in wider yield spreads going forward and that is where you have to look for the real market, free market evaluation of risk. That's the basis of my paper. That's the basis of my evaluation as to an intrinsic value of Bitcoin. And um, look, inflation expectations will just accelerate the debt spiral, right? Because the coupons will increase and your organic growth of your debt balloon will also expand more quickly because a higher coupon, everything else being equal, requires more tax revenues to service that higher coupon um, there's so many ways this could uh, could play out all of them lead me to believe that you need to own Bitcoin as a hedge uh, I'll stress again I don't want the system to fail I don't I believe there needs to be a parallel system one which is a store of value called Bitcoin one which is a a currency which facilitates international trade, all the things that currencies are good at. Um, and, and Let's be honest too, if the government wants to print more money as a short-term solution to, uh, to ease uh, uh, social burdens, um, that's okay. You can never print yourself to prosperity. That is a mathematical certainty but can it ease the, the, the bumps along the road? There's no question it can. I mean, did the Fed do the right thing in 2019, 2020? In my opinion, yes, they did the right thing, but the costs of it will be borne on future generations and that's yeah. what you need to hedge.
1: Dual, dual question for you. So one is, and I think you, you just maybe answered it. Um, if you were a central banker, uh, you know, uh, head of the fed or the ECB, what would you be doing if anything differently? And two is what are your thoughts on the recent kind of development over the last year, um, of, of foreign central banks and, and nations, um, being net sellers of treasuries, um, for the first time in, in almost four decades. Yeah, and what are the yeah. implications of, of
2: that for the dollar as, as a reserve currency? So I'll answer your second question first. Uh, I I'm, I'm just going to go to, uh, uh Stan Druckenmiller who honestly is a, a one of the, another absolutely phenomenal global macro investor another one I don't say like myself I mean like a Ray Dalio type okay uh you got to listen to these uh these people I I didn't I'm not the one that say that within 15 years uh the, the US is at risk of losing its global reserve currency status uh, that was Stan Druckenmiller that said that um what are the pre indications of something like that happening? Yeah, you start selling down your reserve, uh, your your treasury, uh, U.S. Treasury holdings. You start planning as a as another as a central banker from another country. Um, you'd be smart to do that. Uh, you'd be smart to increase your store of values. Canada has no gold left. Eh? in two thousand and sixteen, I think we sold all our gold, and. Okay, so I'm going to move to your first question. What would I be doing as a central banker? Let's assume that I actually wanted that job, which I promise (laughs) you I don't want. What would I be doing as a central banker? I wouldn't have been selling my gold, okay? I will call them out for that. And what else might I be doing? What do you think else I might be doing? I might be looking for other store of value assets that would replace the US as reserve asset. Okay. And this is part of my thesis as well. When energy markets become priced in Bitcoin, there will be a natural movement away from the US dollar as reserve asset as well. Okay. Not only will it be a reserve currency move away, but also as a reserve asset. And digital energy, which is Bitcoin, it just seems logical to me that uh, oil and other uh, energy uh, should be priced in Bitcoin. If a natural resource rich nation like Russia is selling their valuable natural resources for US dollar fiat, that's not a good trade. But what if they were selling it for digital energy, Bitcoin? That's sort of a smart trade in my opinion you sell natural energy for digital energy. Digital energy is Bitcoin, which is a store of value or a technology that will uh, reward you in the future for your work or time or energy expended today that you wanna consume in the future. This is the first law of thermodynamics for all engineers. It it, it rings true. You don't only have to listen to uh, you know, the smartest guy in this room, uh, which includes the Bitcoin room, which is Michael Saylor. Uh, all due respect to the other very smart people in this room, but Michael Saylor got it. Uh, and not only did he get it in size, he uh, he explains it so eloquently, right? So do I ever want to be a central banker? Gosh, it's not an easy job. Would I yeah. want to be a central banker so that I could help uh, future generations of Canadians uh, because I think that the uh, the corner that we've painted ourselves in right now is uh there's very few solutions yeah I would take that job it would be a very difficult job uh, but it would include and I'd have to have a mandate of open thinking open-minded thinking that allows you to uh, reverse some of the uh, the dumb policies that you've been enacting in the last uh few years including selling all of our gold uh including some of these statements by federal politicians in canada uh the budget will balance itself okay that was by our prime prime minister if you were a ceo of a company that said that to his stakeholders i don't know he shouldn't be in that that ceo should not be in that position very long because budgets don't balance themselves, Mr. Prime Minister, okay? And this is very, very concerning for future generations of Canadians. And so I wouldn't want the job, Dylan. Uh, I would take it uh, because I think that uh, uh, there's not enough smart thinkers up on Parliament Hill in Canada. I do have a conservative guy that I would put in that chair. Uh, I think a lot of people know who I may be talking about. Uh, he is gives me hope that there are some rational minds uh, in, in, the, uh, in the House of Commons in, in Canada. Um, this is not a drill, ladies and gentlemen, it's mathematics. It's not about a popularity contest. Printing money is a, a pretty certain way of, of getting more votes than someone who goes up there and says, I, I'm not printing any more money and plus I'm going to double your taxes. Well, it's too late. Even if you doubled our taxes, it doesn't solve the mathematical problem. So, but pretty sure the guy that's going to print more money has a better chance of running or gaining a second term of uh, of office, right? Yep. So you have to balance that against the uh, the discipline that's required in a central banking function. Um, maybe I could get you and Will Clement to be uh, to be the kids that run uh, these these types of. Uh, things. I'm too old for that. Uh, but you know what, I do still care about as, uh, uh, as much about the future as you two guys do. So appreciate the kind of words. All right. I think uh, I'll
1: ask you one last question, and then we can wrap it up. Um, All right. Do you expect any, well, maybe it's the Dalio types, but maybe on the corporate side, do you expect more Michael sailors who see this opportunity and, and lever up with basically negative yielding debt um you know at zero coupon and, and sailor offered convertible notes but um really just speculative attacking the dollar seeing the opportunity cost of acquiring bitcoin as an asset versus um you know melting ice cube bonds oh, as a as a liability um do you think do you think we're going to see more of that in 2021 or into the future um you know because someone like you know you can uh, fiat is created through through lending, right? It's created through Correct. through credit, right. and so so I I think maybe as this as the system starts to to unwind, or if, if Bitcoin starts to really explode, it's probably on the back of maybe a commercial bank, but there's there's a lot of regulations there. But maybe you know some funds that borrow ten billion dollars at at near nothing.
2: Gosh, it would be the greatest trade ever. All right, there's been that. The book is. Uh, there's been titles of that book, the greatest trade ever, right? It, t- it typically goes in the opposite direction, needing, you know, the greatest trade ever, you're short, uh, uh, you're short, uh, you've you've purchased protection your short the market your long volatility those tend to be the greatest trades ever because you know vol will tick down for for 5 years but then when it spikes it uh, you know the expression it's is you metric. take this yeah you well you take the you, you take the staircase down and you take the elevator up right i mean uh that's what vol does so you take the staircase down you take the elevator up and when you're long vol uh, uh and the elevator goes up you saw what what bill ackman was able to accomplish by being long default protection on an index of corporate bonds in the United States it basically hedged his entire equity exposure and he he crystallized a huge capital gain by astutely put uh, purchasing default insurance before uh the word got out that wow things are really going to get ugly right so that's what what smart managers are paid to do is anticipate the future and try and anticipate the future but also pay a reasonable price for the insurance so um you know, here's here's what I do know. Um, there are a lot of smart CFOs in in uh, the global credit uh, capital markets. Okay, and a smart CFO that takes the opportunity to borrow at a, at historically low rates and fix the term, meaning you're not just borrowing for a few months; you're borrowing for ten years or so. Uh, you lock in your term. You can take the proceeds of that uh, debt. Uh, financing that you've uh, uh, that you've undertaken, and you can do it whatever you want. I mean, under the veil of general corporate purposes, if that means using it for Bitcoin and acquiring Bitcoin for your treasury, yeah, there's guys that have need to be doing this math. Um, you know, Mr. Saylor did it with, uh, with a convertible note and essentially reduced that coupon down to zero. What would his coupon have been if he didn't use a convertible note, uh, meaning convertible into equity? It probably would have been around, you know, I'm going to guess around 2% over US Treasuries. It would have been a spread of 2% over US Treasuries. So, uh, you know, there's different ways of accomplishing getting money in the door at a fixed rate. Whether it's with straight debt or convertible debt, um, but then the key thing is what do you do with it? And yeah, I think there's people that should be doing it. Should a country do it, Dylan? Yeah, yeah. In my opinion, yeah, countries should do it. Uh, you know, they're not knocking on my door to be the central bank governor of Canada, and uh, and and I'm sort of happy about that. But uh, listen, I would, you know, I've spent my whole life trading credit. I do know that when the perception of risk is lowest meaning spreads are as narrow as they are right now, actual risk is highest, okay? And the flip side is when the perception of risk is highest, meaning vol is trading at, you know, above 70% annualized and and nothing works. And well, actual perception of risk is highest, but actual risk is lowest, meaning prices have already fallen to levels that are now compensate compensating you on a go forward basis for the risk that you're taking at that time. So it's always a game of, you know, there's an expression, you can't suck and blow at the same time. But what you got to be able to do is take advantage of what the markets are giving you at various times. And right now, the markets are flush with liquidity, people are reaching for yield. If you're a CFO, you should take that liquidity uh, advantage, you should issue term debt. And part of your use of proceeds, in my opinion, whether it's 6% of those proceeds or you know whatever percent it is, you put some of it in Bitcoin or all of it, uh, that's a pretty smart uh, use of proceeds. And I would not just advocate it for the CFOs of publicly or privately traded companies. I would advocate it for CFOs of your personal finance, i.e. you, (laughs) Mr. and Mrs. Jones. Well, you're the CFO of your family household, you should be doing the same. Whether you actually borrow the money or you just have cash on hand, don't keep a store of value. Don't use cash as a store of value. Cash is for liquidity, but take some of that cash that you're, if you're using any of that cash as a store of value, that's not the proper use. Flip it into something that is a store of value. Uh, and Bitcoin belongs in that uh, in, in that uh, general uh, basket. You know, um, I'm going to quote Robert B- Breedlove here. He believes there's $250 trillion in the world that are a store of value asset. So what would that be? It'd be like real estate, right? Gold, fine art, all of that stuff adds up to 250 trillion. And Bitcoin's still under a trillion. It's 1 250th of the store of value assets in the world. Good Lord, if you're a risk manager, or if you're a guy that plays, you know, one of these things is not like the other, right? What are you going to do? You go to the one that's less than a trillion dollars. Plus, it's the most beautiful technology you've ever seen in your life. It's transferable, divisible. Uh, uh, help me out here. Transferable, divisible, portable, everything that you love about Bitcoin. Scares. Scares. Oh, thank you for that one. I mean, it's a 21 million, high, math and code, and it's less than a trillion dollars in the total of that pie in the world right now is U S dollar 250 trillion. Oh, like what, it's like what Paul
1: Tudor Jones said. It's, it's gonna, it's you the bet on the fastest horse. horse.
2: So yeah, you, you always do probabilities. You, you, you don't put it a hundred percent in, uh, you play probability, you do expected value analysis, uh, number go up. Probability number go up is high. It's not certain, but it's greater than zero that the number go up technology will, uh, uh, overcome some of these short-term volatility, some of these short-term FUD that we're experiencing right now. I'm looking forward to the Bitcoin conference to, uh, to learn more, uh, to meet young kids like yourself that, are, uh, that see the future and, and want to make the world a, uh, uh, you know, a more uh, egalitarian place also more exciting place, the number of things that can be built on the Bitcoin blockchain going forward, the number of applications. Layer two, you know, the Jack Maulers of the world. Layer three, eventual smart contracts being built on the Bitcoin blockchain. This is so good for my kids. Why? Because the stuff that I have left them me being part of society for the last 30 years that it's done nothing but increase the debt. And I'm going to pass this on to my kids. I don't feel that good about my generation pulling forward all future benefits to my generation at the expense of my kids. I better do something to try and help my kids overcome that math. And uh, this is going to be my part Um which is uh, for the rest of my life, I am gonna be dedicated to the Bitcoin community to try and right a wrong that has happened for the last parts of my life. The wrong being, hey, let's just keep printing Fiat. it, It solves problems, but it's not a store of value solution. So two parallel systems, we don't need to hope that one system breaks to the benefit of the other. The two systems should exist in parallel. Uh, people should be educated about it. You know, we haven't even touched on the ener- energy FUD, but all of this comes back to the first laws of thermodynamics, the rule of conservation of energy. I'm looking forward to the future uh, uh, or helping the future uh, for my kids, for young kids like you, Dylan, I'm looking forward to your leadership and uh very much looking forward to meeting a bunch of people in, in, in Miami um, because I've learned a ton from, uh, from the community. Greg, I I really appreciate
1: you coming on. Um, Miami's going to be a hell of a time. We'll have to, we'll have to catch up and grab a beer together. And I I might have to go and uh, hedge, hedge with some ball. I might have to go, a little, a little little bit of protection.
2: Well, it's, it's, you got to own, you know, credit. Got the Bitcoin part covered. Well, here's the neat thing though. When you when you are long credit, you're short volatility. So think of yeah. all the credit managers in the world that are short vol. Why is there such a puke when vol, exp- when vol spikes? Because everyone's shorted. So it's running in their face. They're getting crushed on all angles. It's always nice to have things that actually benefit from expanding vol. And over time, that will be Bitcoin in the short term. Are we certain that there couldn't be a strong correlation in a risk off trade? We discussed that. Long term, let's talk in 20 years. Okay, we'll rerun our correlation analysis in 20 years. I think there'll be some substantially different uh, opinions. And um, yeah, this will be left to the guys like you. In 20 years, I, I won't even know how to use an HP 12C. I bet you don't even know what an HP 12C is. Hey, I wanna show you one thing really cool. This is an HP 12C. This was the, the financial calculator that, uh, that I grew up using. I happened to go, stay with me for one sec. My, my granddad had this thing in his office. Okay. This thing is a mechanical calculator. It's called the Kurta. Okay. This is a, a, a salt or pepper grinder mechanical calculator. You can do square root functions on this. 1955, Kurt Herzog. I think that's his last name. in In, in the Second World War, he was in, in, interned in a uh, concentration camp. He was an Austrian Jew who was interned in the concentration camp and was working on his project. But he didn't tell the the Germans his uh, uh, all of his secrets because they figure there's a chance that if he had taken his mathematical calculations using this calculator or some some generation of that in in the second world war they could have changed the gyroscopes on their v2 rockets and it could have changed the war because the v2 rockets were just coming in they had this was extremely good technology that the Germans had their their aim wasn't that uh precise but the technology of sending a rocket across the english channel to bomb uh to bomb uh england well this guy didn't give this technology to, the, to the, uh, the Germans. He went on and in 1955, this was the mechanical calculator, okay? So look, 1955, 1955, this calculator was 1985, okay? That's the HP-12C, 30 years later. 30 years after this, what do we have? It's called Bitcoin, knuckleheads. It's called Bitcoin, okay? The most beautiful financial innovation that I've seen in my lifetime. Okay. And this was my granddad's. This is mine. And what are my kids going to be using? Well, you just picked it up. Okay. That is how things change over time. And um, yeah, you should look this up on YouTube. This was the coolest thing. It can do square roots. Fascinating. It is fascinating. Okay. And um, and that's what we have. So uh, keep studying math and uh, keep appreciating the technology. Technological adva- uh, advances of uh, of uh, civilization. Bitcoin's a beautiful thing. I like think on that note,
1: uh, we we'll, we'll close this up. Thank you, Greg. Really appreciate your time. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'll see
0: you in Miami. See you next week. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin podcast network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.